Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, for any of us here, Sunday mornings are a great time to connect with your pastors and elders. And so if you have any questions, uh, comments, concerns, and whatnot, please do not hesitate to speak with any one of us, and we would be more than glad to help you with whatever we can help you with. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we're in Luke chapter 18 and verse 35 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 878. If you are using a church Bible, page 878. Luke chapter 18 and verse 35, and before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, as we come to you, your word, we know that only by your spirit would we be convicted of the truths of it, and so we ask for your grace and for your mercy that you would make your word alive to us, that it would uh, convict our hearts of your love, uh, your truth, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name we pray, amen. Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God and, and who it is that it belongs to. And not everyone is, is really getting it. Not everyone's understanding it. And it is in these past several texts that we have had a number of people who, who while they can see physically, they are actually uh, quite blind when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's a Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, who can see clearly the sinfulness of the tax collector standing far off, and he is feeling pretty good about himself in relative comparison. And yet this Pharisee is utterly blind to his own sin, his own need, and his own desperate condition. And so he can see, uh, but he can't see. We've looked at a rich young ruler who could see uh, clearly in Jesus someone who he thought could answer the question of all of his longings. And yet this young, uh, capable, successful man is actually blind to seeing true riches in Jesus that far exceed uh, anything he already possesses, which the accumulation of it has really only left him in one anyway. And so he can see, but he can't see. We've witnessed in our last passage the disciples of Jesus hearing him speak about his own upcoming suffering and death and resurrection, and yet with eyes wide open, they are still thoroughly blind to what it is that Jesus is trying to tell them. So much so that they are somehow more concerned with their own sacrifices and are more preoccupied with the question of what is in it for us. We left everything that if the cost of Christianity can be this high, is it really worth it? And so we've had a number of people who can see uh, physically and yet are quite blind when it comes to the kingdom of God. But it is in our text this morning that we find exactly the opposite. For we have within it a man who is literally blind, and yet he can see uh, he can see in Jesus something more clearly than anyone else has seen in recent passages. And our understanding of what this blind man sees, what he believes about himself and what he believes about Jesus is very important in our ability to understand salvation and ultimate healing. This passage is a portrait of what genuine faith really looks like, the kind of faith, verse 42, that makes one well. For it is this kind of faith which is essential for us to understand when it comes to the kingdom of God and to see if it exists within each of us. Please look with me in verse 35 where we see first the poor condition of this blind man as he feels it. 
as he, that's Jesus, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. I want you uh, to notice first the pitiable condition of this blind man, the desperation of his situation. He can't see a thing. He's poor because uh, he probably can't work because he's blind. And therefore, he is currently a beggar. But he is a beggar who places himself in the way of potential help. Remember that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem with this full understanding that he's going to suffer and die upon a cross in place of the sinful. Uh, He's going to rise again on the third day. He is currently on this mission to get to Jerusalem. His face is set towards it, Luke 9 tells us. But he's not the only one headed to Jerusalem. It's the Passover season, which means all the people are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate it, which means that there's likely this steady stream of people walking this path and using this route to get there. They didn't want to go through Samaria because they had a very low view of the Samaritans, and so they go instead through Jericho. And so if there's any place where this blind beggar could receive the most amount of money for his efforts, it is right here. This is a high-traffic area where you have thousands of people walking through, and they are religious people on a spiritual journey, so to speak, where giving alms to the poor is smiled upon. And so there is this potential for a lot of gain. We see the same thing in certain corners and intersections in town where we witness people asking for food or money. It's always a high traffic area and usually during rush hour. It's a similar concept to the scene here, and there are likely other beggars on the same route. Now, now blindness tragically uh, had been a lot more common in this context than it is in current times. It could be something like a birth defect, uh, venereal disease, even something as simple as an infection due to the lack of sanitation or an accident that crushed the eyes. But a lot of what is preventable today by modern medicine could not be prevented in the first century. And blindness would regularly reduce one to poverty because, again, there weren't any jobs for blind people in this era. And so their livelihood came from begging and being utterly and completely dependent upon the mercy of other people, which, frankly, that mercy runs out pretty quickly. And there wasn't much, if any, government aid. And so we begin to understand more this man's plight. It's tragic uh, to be blind and and live in a world designed for people with vision. It's tragic to be blind and not be able to see the faces of family and the panorama of of the beauty of creation. I mean, something as insignificant as trying to get a splinter out of your finger, I mean, that's nearly impossible when you're blind. And it could be one thing to be born blind. Maybe that's worse to never understand uh, things like color and whatnot. Uh, Maybe it's worse to lose sight after once having it and only try to see things as you remember them with your mind and feel those memories begin to fade in that mind over time without the ability to regain them and refresh them. I mean, think about the faces you once knew, and they begin to blur, and you can't do anything about it. It seems from verse 41 that this particular man may have once had sight, and he desires to recover it. I mean, I don't know which one is worse. And at this point in the description, there's usually an amount reactionary of of pity and and compassion upon the blind that that we can feel, and especially a blind man in poverty. But but that sympathetic response uh, may actually not have been the case in the first century at all. In John chapter 9, there's a man there blind from birth, and the disciples, when they see the blind man, the very first question they ask Jesus is this, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. 
they look at his miserable condition and they immediately assume guilt. What did this guy do? What did mom and dad do? Whose fault is this? Because the prevalent stance, theologically speaking, is that if your life had this kind of tragedy within it, it's most likely you who are to blame, that God is cursing you with his blindness or some kind of horrendous wickedness, whether in your life or in your parents' life, because the underlying assumption is that the position you find yourself in is a position that you actually deserve. You earn it. And therefore, your current experience of blindness is a form of of divine justice. That underlying assumption can in and of itself become another form of torture. As every bit of suffering you endure, you feel like you are a culprit in it. I mean, think about it. What something like that can do to your psyche. Blind on the outside, dying within, suffering and thinking in your own mind that this is what is rightfully mine. Now, Jesus' uh, response to the disciples in John 9, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. He's trying to clear that out. This is not due to sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes our suffering is purely so that the works of God might be displayed in it. Physical ailments are not always a sin issue. Jesus corrects them there. But I bring that up all to shed light on the pitiable condition we find this man in, a condition that he feels daily, and it helps us to understand the context of his own actions within this passage. On the outside and within, he is suffering. And so here we have this blind beggar on a busy thoroughfare. And with his heightened sense of hearing, because he doesn't have his eyes, he knows that something is different about this particular crowd coming near to him, so much so that he has to ask about it. And in one phrase, the people around him tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He hears that Jesus is there and he knows my time is limited. He is passing by and therefore the opportunity is right now and this window is about to close. Verse 38, we read his response to it all. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This pitiable, uh, blind, poor beggar cries out to Jesus with all his might. He's not going to let the opportunity slip away because he believes. He believes in Jesus' ability to change his life. This blind beggar has faith. This is the point of our passage. This is a portrait of faith. And I want you to notice three things characteristic of this faith. One is undaunted fervency to his confession of, of Jesus' identity, and three, his need for mercy. His undaunted fervency, his confession of Jesus' identity, and his understanding of his own need for mercy, all of these are characteristic of the faith within him. First, his undaunted fervency. The moment he knows that Jesus is near him is the moment he begins to cry out for Jesus to hear him. He's not going to let this opportunity pass him by because it might not ever be there again. And this blind man, while he cannot see, he can definitely yell. And he's yelling into the ears of the people in front of them. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to some of you with younger kids. They always talk in this yelling voice. Even when your ear is like six inches from their mouth, they talk to you like you're 25 feet away. It's, it's loud. I mean, think about it. This man, he can't run to the feet of Jesus like the leper did. He didn't have friends to carry him through the roof like the paralytic had. 
He can't sneak through the crowd like the hemorrhaging woman did and just try and touch the hem of Jesus' robe unnoticed. No, this blind man in utter darkness can only hear the crowd. And he can feel the crowd, but he can't really locate Jesus within the crowd. And so all he can do is yell in the direction of the crowd at the top of his lungs. And there's this utter uh, desperation here that with all my might, I have to get Jesus to notice me in my predicament. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of desperation where you just cry out. Maybe you've heard some bad news and you just wail out loud. Or, or you lost uh, one of your kids at the beach or the mall for a moment and you begin to yell out their name in desperation and, and you just cry out louder because every moment that passes and there is no response, that desperation just gets heightened. And this man's doing the same thing here. It says if every moment without a response from Jesus, it only heightens that feeling and therefore heightens his voice accordingly. And the people in front of him, they rebuke him. They tell him to be quiet, and I don't think they do that uh, very politely. But again, he's undaunted. He is determined to be heard. When they tell him to shut it, it has the exact opposite effect, for he just opens it up even more. Now, to do this, you really have to not care about what people think about you. To do this, you have to not care at all. That all you're crying out for Jesus might be offensive to those people around you. And this kind of undauntedness is characteristic of genuine faith. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he says, all true faith is opposed. I think that's true. Faith is often tried. He says, faith must wage war for its existence. Faith must wage war for its existence. And that's what the blind man is doing here. His faith is waging war for its own existence. When fake faith is told to shut it, it actually shuts it. When true faith is told to shut it, it cries out all the more, no matter how many people are put off in the process. Genuine faith is undaunted and unashamed. Luke 9, 26, this is Jesus speaking. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. There is no shame in this blind beggar. There is this undaunted fervency to this man's faith because he feels his condition and this desperation so acutely. Secondly, there is also this clear confession of Jesus' identity in this cry of his faith. He understands exactly who Jesus is. Now, the crowd tells them Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and that's because Jesus is actually a pretty common name in the first century. And so people would add, like, the son of whatever or the location to the back of it for identification purposes. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That's the title the crowds give to him. But this blind man is not going to call him Jesus of Nazareth. He must call him Jesus, son of David, which shows to us what a clear understanding of Jesus he has. That title, Son of David, is a messianic title meaning the anointed one. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David there that one of your sons is going to establish a kingdom and he will be eternally enthroned. This is God's forever king. And this king is coming from the line and lineage of David. Isaiah 35 speaks about the Messiah's reign, and in verse 5 specifically, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are the things that would be characteristic of the coming kingdom of God, and isn't all of this happening during Jesus' time on earth? Jesus is one of his opening 
preaching lines in Luke 14 and verse 18 at the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What does Jesus say about that exact prophecy from Isaiah 61? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is a fulfillment of scripture. He is the forever king from the line of David. He is the one who is going to right these wrongs. And he is doing that and proving it over all of these authenticating miracles over this time. Now, this is where it gets pretty crazy when we examine the faith of this particular beggar. Because by definition, this blind, has never, this blind man has never been able to even see one miracle. He could only hear secondhand or thirdhand about them. This blind man would never see the skin of the leper being made new or witness a paralytic picking up his mat and walking away. He has probably only overheard other people talking about Jesus as they passed by his little begging perch in Jericho. I don't even think he's heard Jesus preach ever because he's crying out here like this is the first time that Jesus has been this close to him. All he has are rumors. All he has are testimonies from other people, and yet he still knows with all his heart that this Jesus, he's the promised one. He is the Lord's anointed one. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the long-awaited son of David, and there's no way that I'm going to cry out, Jesus of Nazareth, because I have to bestow more honor on him than that. And therefore, the only title this blind beggar will proclaim is the royal one, Jesus, son of David. This is faith. I mean, John the Baptist, wilderness preacher of repentance, even he in Luke 7, 20, he sends people to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I mean, there is a, a little bit of uneasiness in John the Baptist's mind right there. And we're talking about John the Baptist. And he needs some clarity. Jesus responds to his doubt. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This blind beggar is somehow more convinced of Jesus' identity than the great preacher of repentance in this very moment. He has put the two and two together, and he knows that Jesus is not merely some fancy rabbi who teaches with lively authority. Jesus is not only some moral figure who is also some inspirational leader. No, Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the sum of the Old Testament, the very one we have all been waiting for, that God would send to us his anointed into the world to save his people. I know with all my heart, no matter how many people tell me to shut it, that this Jesus right here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Savior of the world. This is his clear confession of Jesus' true identity. And so undaunted fervency, clear confession of Jesus' identity, and now a third characteristic of his faith and understanding of his own need for mercy. I think that most people, when their lives kind of hit a rock bottom, and that's when people start to shake their fists at God as if they're somehow the victims of, of something. That I got a bone to pick with you, God, for this lot in my life. Why do bad things happen to good people like myself? If there's anything going on here, you owe me one. Throw me 
something over here. And that kind of complaint usually has a much higher view of ourselves and a much lower view of God than what is accurate, that we are so good that somehow the God of all the universe has to answer to us, and we take no responsibility for our own contribution to the heap we find ourselves in. It's a wrong way to look at things, but it's very common. And if there's anyone suffering in a pit that would feel that he has a bone to pick with God, it would be this blind beggar who would then ask for some kind of payback. Jesus, I know you are. You have the power to give me what is rightfully mine. But he didn't do that. And instead he cries out for mercy. And mercy is not something owed. It's not something we're entitled to. It's not something that we can earn. Otherwise, it's not mercy. It's, it's a cry with the hope that the one who is hearing it is actually merciful. And the one who's listening is actually compassionate. And that this one is willing and wanting to help the ones who need help the most. You really have to believe something about yourself. And you really have to believe something about Jesus to cry out for mercy like this. And this is the posture of this man in our passage. Mercy. I'm appealing to your compassion, Jesus, to look upon my helpless estate. Son of David, I know who you are. I know it. You are the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of all kings. And I am undaunted in my faith. No matter how many people tell me I'm wrong or how many people tell me to shut my trap, I'm just going to cry out all the more for you passing me by in this very moment. I'm not going to let go without you noticing me. And there's some of us here right now who have to cry out for Jesus in this very same way. But this blind man who cannot see physically, I mean, he can really see. He can really see Jesus. He can really see himself with the eyes of faith. Verse 40, we see Jesus' response to him and his response to his faith. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Jesus wants to focus on this man's faith. And he stops his journey to Jerusalem for a blind beggar crying out to him for mercy. Jesus actually stops his journey into Jerusalem for this one man. And we have to let that sink in and not take it for granted. That phrase, and Jesus stopped, is so key in our understanding of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom of God. While everyone else is rebuking and shushing this desperate man, Jesus hears the cry of faith, and he stops in his tracks to turn all of his attention wholly to him, the insignificant one, the poor and the unimportant one. Jesus stops it all for him. And it's not like Jesus isn't in the middle of something. I mean, less than 10 verses prior, he tells his disciples, we looked at this last Sunday, verse 31, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. It's not like Jesus isn't in the middle of something important. He is literally on the most important mission in all of history. I mean, for those of you with kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces who have started to play video games, I mean, have you ever tried to get one of them to do something in the middle of one? And you can ask them, can you take the dog out? And they literally are deaf in that moment. 
and you can talk louder, and the response is, hold on, hold on. As they stare into the screen, I am right in the middle. And they aren't really hearing what you're saying. That's a video game mission. It doesn't mean anything. Jesus is on a mission to save the world. And to save this world of sinners, he has to offer himself, his body, to be flogged, mocked, crucified. His experience is about to be death upon a cross. His pain is the wrath of God poured out upon him in our place. If there's anyone who should be deaf to the cries of some blind, poor, unimportant beggar in a long line of unremarkable beggars on this roadside in Jericho, it should be this man, Jesus, who has much more important and pressing things going on. But Jesus stops. And that phrase is so key in understanding the gospel and the good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, friends, it doesn't matter who you are or what kind of pit you find yourself in, whether it's self-inflicted or not. Even if everyone in the world finds you to be a nuisance, an annoyance, and just wants you to shut your trap, if you would, but cry out to Jesus undauntingly and recognize who he really is, and cry out for mercy because you feel your condition acutely. Jesus will stop, and he will come near to you, and we cannot let him pass us by. He'll answer. Not because of anything in us. Not because we've earned it by being good. No, it's all because of something in him. He comes near to the brokenhearted. He hears the cries of the penitent. And a bruised reed, he will not break. That with the weight of the entire world upon his shoulders, Jesus turns all of his attention to the broken, blind beggar who desires mercy and who has faith. This is the very heart of the gospel. And Jesus asks him the one question, what do you want me to do for you? And this man could have said, give me my family back. Make me rich, Jesus. That's going to solve all my problems. Or it could have been as short-sighted as, you know, just one hot home-cooked meal. That's all I'm asking for. He could have been like Jesus' own disciples who, we want seats of honor next to your throne, Jesus. But without pause, he knows that there is but one root to all my maladies. There is but one cause to all of my misery, and it is my condition. It's my ailment. And Jesus gives the man his sight back with the words, your faith has made you well. The cause of your healing is your very own faith. Jesus honors this man's trust and he celebrates this man's belief in him. And the very first sight that this man takes in as his eyes are made new is the face of Jesus who has heard his cries for mercy and who stopped in his tracks to give him the fullness of his own attention. The very first sight this man takes in is the sight of his Savior's face. I mean, isn't that what we always think about? Oh, to see the face of Jesus. This blind man who has seen Jesus with the eyes of his faith now gets to see him with the new eyes that Jesus gives to him. Now, did this man's faith bring back his vision? Name it, claim it. Did this man's faith do it? Like faith healers tell you, it's, you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. Did this man's faith bring back his vision? Well, yes and no. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Faith saves us just as a mouth saves from hunger. If we be hungry, bread is the real cure for hunger. But still it would be right to say that eating removes hunger. 
seeing that the bread itself could not benefit us unless the mouth should eat it. Faith is the soul's mouth, whereby the hunger of the heart is removed. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who heals. But that faith is the means by which we partake of him. We believe in Christ and thus appropriate Christ to ourselves. But even when we say that, we can sometimes belittle faith. And I don't think Jesus wants to belittle this man's faith here. He's celebrating it. He's saying on purpose, your faith has saved you. And he doesn't have a follow-up. Your faith has saved you, but it's only a mouth that eats my bread. He's not saying that. He's celebrating this faith. There's something in Jesus' words that shows his own desire to honor genuine faith. This Charles Spurgeon again, and I quote it because I just can't say it or write it like he does. He says this, faith is chosen by Christ to wear the crown of salvation because faith refuses to wear the crown. It was Christ that saved the penitent woman. It was Christ that saved that blind beggar, but he takes a crown from off his own head, so dear is faith to him, and he puts the diadem upon the head of faith and says, thy faith has saved thee. Because he is absolutely certain that faith will never take glory to herself, but will again lay the crown at the pierced feet and say, not unto myself be glory, for thou hast done it, thou art the Savior, and thou alone. In order then to illustrate and to protect the interests of sovereign grace and to shut out all vain glorying, God has been pleased to make the way of salvation to be faith and by no other means." Do you hear that? Jesus crowns and honors faith because faith crowns and honors Jesus. We don't have to belittle the one to honor the other. For Jesus honors the one which truly honors him. Faith is beautiful. And we can say that without vain glorying. And that beautiful faith wants a spotlight on the object of that said faith. For all we like blind beggars we are, Jesus is our portion. We just eat. And yet somehow the Savior singles off my faith as worthy of praise when he's actually the one who gave it to me. He honors belief and trust, and yet our belief and trust rests only upon him. Jesus crowns faith, and yet the faith of the people put that diadem upon Jesus himself. Now, this is totally antagonistic to what we hear around town. Name it, claim it. You don't have enough faith? That's narcissistic. Look what I did with what I got. That's not what Jesus is describing or celebrating here. Now, is this passage really and merely about a blind beggar recovering his sight to enjoy for the next 20 years or so? No, this healing and, and other healings like it in the Gospel of Luke really serve as parables for us to illustrate truths about the kingdom of God and who it is that it belongs to. Whether it's a leper or the blind beggar or the paralytic, these ailments show us externally sin's damaging power that it can debilitate, it can blind, and it can destroy life. We feel it. And for those of us who are Christian, we know so many of our pains historically are not because of this circumstance or that person over here, but so many of our miseries are because of the root and the singular cause because of I turned away from God within my heart. And there's an analogy from the physical to the spiritual. And for those of us who are believers or are about to be, we feel that devastation that sin has wreaked upon us. Where it actually does impact everything. 
It's ruined this relationship over the year. It's messed up my mind here, my heart, how I react to this and to that. And we feel in desperation once we've located that root issue that I must be freed from this one ailment. And then we hear the name Jesus. And if we believe in his promises to wash us white as snow and to break that power of sin in our lives, to forgive us what maybe other people will never forgive, to forgive us who have turned away from him, we cry out to him and we don't let the opportunity pass us by. We cry out for mercy and he hears us and he forgives us and he washes us with his own blood. He breaks the power of sin and death in his very own resurrection and he gives to us new life by dealing with the very power that has devastated us so. And every Christian and every believer, we resonate with this blind beggar utterly ruined and yet made new because we can see with the eyes of faith something in Jesus uh, unlike the Pharisee who can only see and is bothered by the sins of others and refuses to see his own. We're more like the tax collector. I feel my sin. I need mercy. Unlike the rich young ruler who has everything the world has to offer and still wants life but somehow can't see treasure in Jesus, the Christian sees in Jesus everything. This is a king of kings. This is a lord of lords. This is a son of David. This is my savior and my God. Take the world and give me Jesus. Unlike the disciples who are counting out loud their own sacrifices for him, wondering if it's all worth it that we followed you, we are more like Paul in Galatians 6, 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Christ Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mean, to the one who has faith, we see ourselves in this analogy, do we not? Poor, blind, broken, weak, and we find in him our all in all. And to the one who does not have faith, today is the day of salvation, and it is now the time to cry out to him. Look with me in verse 43 as we see what this blind man does in response to his healing. We see faith flourish and blossom, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The end goal of all healing, whether it be physical, spiritual, and whatnot, the end goal of all healing is the praise and glory of God. The purpose of it all is worship. And in this man's heart, we find deep, deep worship as much as he felt his deep, deep misery prior. There is a love, a new love within his heart that is greater than any other love. Now, let's say you've been blind for quite a while and you're giving your vision back today. What do you want to do? I mean, go run and see your family, right? The wife, the kids, see how they've changed. Show them, I'm back for you. I'm back again. Maybe friends or extended family. I can see them again. I can enjoy you again in, in an unadulterated way. Some of you guys want to run into the ocean, hike up a mountain, pet your dogs, blah, blah, blah. Thank you, Jesus, for the healing. But I got to go now. Thank you. I appreciate you, but I have my life to attend to. And that's what many of us will do. Pray in this urgent situation for relief, whether it's an illness or, or you got a big test coming up or you hit a financial hardship. Lord, help me now. A job interview is coming. Lord, Lord. Even getting pulled over. Lord, Lord, Lord. No ticket. No ticket. Please, please, please. And then when the crisis is averted, thank you, God. Now I got to go do what I got to do. That's not what this formerly blind man does. Immediately, he recovers his sight. 
and he sees Jesus Christ. And what's the first thing that he wants to do? It says he follows Jesus, and he glorifies God. I mean, he doesn't want to leave Jesus even for a moment. Jesus is just passing through Jericho. Of course, I want to see my family and friends and all that. But I might not have time to do that if I want to follow Jesus. And right now, nothing matters to me as much as you do. There's nothing wrong with loving family and enjoying the gifts that God has and jumping into the ocean. There's nothing wrong with any of that at all. Unless those things are somehow more supreme than your relationship with the son of David. What has become more supreme to this man is Jesus himself. And all the people who witness this, they know it. And this joy of genuine salvation begins to spread. For true faith produces joy in God and a commitment to follow Jesus forever. James Edward says, faith that doesn't lead to discipleship is not saving faith. It's not. If you think you love Jesus, but you don't want to follow Jesus, that's not faith. Faith wants to follow Jesus forever. And the question for us at the end of a text like this one is do I have faith in the Savior? And if not, then why not? And some of us are on the fence, and some of us do have faith, but it's so weak at the moment, and we keep fighting this recurring sin. Hope is right in front of us. We just have to believe. Jesus Christ is right in front of us. We just have to partake. He's passing us right now. We just have to cry out. We just have to believe, and we cannot let this opportunity pass us by. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, triune God, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we ask by your mercy that you would grant to us a faith that saves and is beautiful and magnificent because it points to Jesus Christ who is beautiful and magnificent. I pray, God, that by your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict our hearts in a way that only you can of the glory of Jesus Christ, that he would be the apple of our eye, the object of all of our affection, and that we would long to follow him the rest of our days and into the next life forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.